It was a joy to be with uh, so many of you last night and just uh, celebrating and through fellowship just our Lord's birth, his condescension that we just sang about. That song, keep it in the back of your minds because it is a very fitting song to accompany our text this morning. I wonder how differently we would live if we could know the future. How differently would you live? You know, the future really does fascinate us, whether it be prognosticating or preparing for our progeny. Maybe you've noticed that virtually every culture has or has had prophets, seers, or some method of trying to divine the future. The current prophets of Western civilization seem to be focused on end-of-the-world cataclysmic events brought on by humankind. But it's not just the secular world that likes to prophesy or contemplate the future. Christians are certainly not immune to this propensity to study prophecy or to make predictions about the future. Have you ever wondered why we are so fascinated, intrigued, captivated by the future, by prophecy? What if I were to tell you that it's not just simple curiosity at work, that it's hardwired into you as a human being? Scripture teaches that this longing for the future is in fact ingrained within us by our creator. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon writes that God has set eternity in the heart of man. We long to discover eternity in the future because we are created for it. We know it intrinsically. It is in our DNA. It's a part of our very being. But what we so often fail to recognize in this pursuit, in this desire to know the future, is our finiteness. That God is God, and we are not. The second half of that verse in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, goes on to say that God has so designed it, while he has set eternity in the heart of man, he has so designed it, That while man longs for eternity, longs to look into eternity, man cannot find out the work of God from beginning to end. He has kept it a mystery. There's really just three important implications from this as we prepare for our text this morning. One of them is Moses teaches us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are secret things which belong to the Lord. We need to recognize this. We need to recognize the limits of available knowledge or that there are limits to available knowledge. Secondly, anything we can know about the future is going to be found in the Old and the New Testaments of our Bible. There is nothing authoritative to be gleaned outside of these sources and teaching that is rooted in these sources. Thirdly, perhaps most pointedly, to try and go beyond what God has revealed in Scripture, to try and be dogmatic where Scripture is silent, or where Scripture says we cannot know, is a manifestation of arrogance. It is a manifestation of unbelief in what God and Christ Jesus have said. 
you do not take God at his word. Now, this does not mean we cannot form opinions and have a great deal of certainty about certain things, but we must also be careful to avoid letting our dogma create division where God and Christ have purposefully and in infinite wisdom remained silent. For believers, it's important to remember that just because someone disagrees with your interpretation of the future does not automatically mean that they have a low view of God or a low view of Scripture. Now, they could, but it doesn't logically follow. It doesn't follow from simple disagreement, so don't start by assuming the worst. I have very good friends who love the Lord and are zealous about knowing God and making Him known who will not agree with me on every conclusion I reach on Matthew 24 through 25 or every area of eschatology. And yet I'd rather be ministering alongside them than many who hold all of the same eschatological conclusions because of their obvious love for the Lord, their love for their loss, and their love for others. Jesus helps us to rightly prioritize our fascination with the future when he speaks to the disciples immediately before his ascension into heaven after his resurrection In Acts 1-7, and this is not an unfamiliar passage, we've already referenced it in this study multiple times, where he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and this is your focus, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Sumeria, even to the most remote parts of the earth. Our emphasis, our attention, our energy as disciples of Jesus Christ is to be on preaching the hope of salvation, the incarnation of the Son that we've sung about this morning, making disciples, teaching them to observe everything God has commanded, loving others. This means that whatever Christ and God have taught and revealed about the future should help us in that mission. It also means whatever they have not taught, whatever they have remained silent on should likewise help to teach us and to instruct us and to guide us in that mission. Should help us in fulfilling the greatest commandments. You know what they are. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second, Jesus said, is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. A study of future things and future timing should be an encouraging reminder to us that despite the trials, despite the tribulations, despite all the difficulty of this life, the gates of hell will not succeed in stopping the growth of God's church. Nothing that Satan, nothing that the sinful world can throw at those who are faithful in Christ Jesus will thwart the plan of God. Let's turn our attention this morning to the theme of Christ's return, specifically the unknowability of the timing of his return. You can open your Bibles along with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 24 as we pick back up in our study here, having left off at verse 36. Follow along with me. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. 
so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there were two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Let's pray. Fathers, we celebrate the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ this Christmas season. Help us as we now this morning turn our attention to that second coming. Help us to understand what it means to live in light of that second coming of Christ, that glorious return. Help us to be busy doing good, loving others, loving you. Help us in our study this morning. We thank you for your spirit which guides us and leads us and directs us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Just a bit of a refresher from last week. Last week we looked at Jesus' use of the coming destruction of the temple in 70 AD there in verses 32 through 35. And Jesus was both answering the disciples' question of when will these things take place from verse 3 of chapter 24, but he was also using it to provide assurance that his promises are yes and amen. In other words, just as assuredly as this will take place within this generation, so too, once you have that sign, you can be assured that the rest of Christ's promises will come to pass. According to Matthew 24 through 35, heaven and earth will pass away, even if the timing is unknown. Christ is returning. There will be an end to the age. And what will never pass away, what will never fail, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of the upheaval, are the promises of God. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Our text this morning opens with a strong, connecting, contrastive but. It's connecting us to the previous section. But there's a contrast that's being drawn. Compared to the knowability of the destruction of the temple, there is a great unknowability around the timing of Christ's return. Even though we can be certain that Christ will return, we cannot and will not know when it will take place. Now, I can't help but ask, and maybe we won't answer it thoroughly. We can't always know the mind of God, but why would this be? Why a secret? Why unknowable? An early church father provides us with what I believe is at least a starting place for the reason why God has not revealed the day of Christ's return. Hilary of Poitiers said, by declaring that no one knows the day, Christ removes from us any need to be concerned about a particular date. This uncertainty is beneficial for our spiritual life. Like I said, that's just a starting place because even if I accept that at face value, I accept that, okay, this is somehow 
beneficial for my spiritual life, and I think there's good grounding for that. God doesn't give us things that are for our ill. If we take that at face value, I am still left with the question of how. How is this beneficial for my spiritual life? I think there's a couple of answers, probably more than this. But one, it keeps us from checking out and becoming mentally removed because we should always be ready. It keeps us from procrastinating. If we knew the day was far off, we might procrastinate about doing good. No child has any understanding of this when mom and dad are gone for a long time and they've got to clean their room. But similarly, it keeps us from thinking, I'll live however I want until that day arrives. We know that Christmas is coming, right? Children, you probably recognize it better than us adults. It's probably more on your mind. You know that Christmas is coming, and most of you are excited about it. We look forward to it. We had a get-together, a fellowship, a party last night, celebrating it. I remember when I was younger, I couldn't wait for Christmas to see my grandparents, cousins, and the gifts, of course the gifts. I was excited about those, and if I'm honest, there were plenty of times where I was so excited about that day, and maybe even the opening of the gifts, that I didn't really give much thought to the rest of the days leading up to Christmas. The reality is, by not knowing the day, it helps prevent us from being so fascinated with that day that we waste or do not make the most of this day. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, he writes to him and says, make the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. To a large extent, that is the message of Ecclesiastes. How to wisely live in this life while preparing for the life to come. Now before we delve any further, there's a couple of helpful notes of explanation definition to help us as we study scripture, specifically prophecy in the day of the Lord. The the reference to that day and that hour here are synonymous terms, and they refer to what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. It's what the New Testament calls the parousia, or the coming. It's a Greek word for coming. It's what many Christians call the second coming. Remember, the disciples At the beginning of this discourse on the Mount of Olives are asking, what will be the sign of your coming, of your parousia? Well, if they're sitting on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, he's already come once, so it must be a second coming. In fact, there's a couple New Testament passages that tie together this Old Testament terminology of day of the Lord with the New Testament terminology of the coming or parousia. One of those is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2 where you read that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or a letter that is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Another is 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Another important note for interpreting an interpretation around this second coming, this day of the Lord, is a reminder that this day is describing a period of time, not a single moment of time. 
In other words, there's a a period of time. There are several events that happen during this day of the Lord. Revelation seems to indicate that this period of time is seven years or perhaps the final three and a half years. There's some debate over whether that is literal or figurative, that seven years or three and a half years. Since you asked, I interpret it as literal. But either way, we are told of a future coming of Christ and day of the Lord that is accompanied by many events, not the least of which is judgment upon this world. And that's the focus of our text this morning. The coming day of the Lord or parousia of Christ and the judgment that accompanies it. As we look into this, as we recognize this unknowability, this mystery around its timing, we might be able to recognize our limited knowledge as humans, but there's two other limitations given here to further express to the disciples and all followers of Jesus Christ the unknowability of that day. Just in case you doubt it, he raises it and says, even the angels of heaven do not know. These are the angels who announced the first advent, the first coming of Christ. We sang about that this morning. They will be there announcing the second coming of Christ. Instead of with good tidings of great joy, with trumpets, foreshadowing judgment. But even those angels who will play a significant part in the coming of Christ do not know the timing. In Revelation and elsewhere, we see their role as messengers and servants of God carrying out his decrees at the end of the age. Okay, so we have, we don't know, the angels don't know. Perhaps most fascinating and frustrating of all is the final one. It's this final one that gives us a little bit of trouble. It might cause you to scratch your head quite a bit because we read, nor the son, but the father alone. What are we to do with that? been in church for some time, you might have all sorts of thoughts running through your head, such as, if Jesus is God, then how can this be? It's a good question. How can the creator and the sustainer of the universe, according to John 1, not know the timing? Did Matthew get it wrong? Those are good questions. Causes us to wade into the mysteries of what is called the kenosis. It's just a English transliteration of a Greek term, and it means to be empty or emptying. What you may not realize is you already sang about it this morning. How low was our Redeemer brought? Paul uses the word kenosis, that emptying in Philippians 2.7, to describe the process of Jesus taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. John, in much more simple and pointed expressions in his gospel, simply said, The word, that is the Son of God, became flesh. Listen to the entirety of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an important doctrine that Jesus became fully man. And here's the mystery of still being fully God. And yet in his humanity, in that flesh that he became, he emptied himself. Even though as God he is omnipresent, while on earth he traveled from place to place. Even though he is all-powerful, while on earth he became hungry, he became tired, he bled, and he ultimately gave up his life and died. And even though as God Jesus is omniscient, in his humanity he laid aside the full exercise of his omniscience to sympathize with our weaknesses. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who sympathizes, who understands, who empathizes with our weaknesses. He felt them, he experienced them, he knows them. And so Jesus is able to say here, as the Son of God, as the Word that became flesh, nor the Son, but God alone, or the Father alone. And if God's Son in human flesh does not know the day, then why would I even begin to suspect or push back thinking I could know or figure out the timing of that day? Well, we've looked at what is not known concerning that day. It might be helpful to take a look at what is known concerning that day from this text. So far in our study of Matthew 24, we've already learned a few things about that day. We've learned that when it comes, it will be obvious. It will light up the sky, just like that thunder and lightning we had last night. That lit up the sky from the east to the west. Second, we've already learned that it will be awesome and awful and terrifying. And our passage today introduces a third characteristic of that day. It will be unexpected. And this is really the theme of verses 37 through 34, the unexpectedness of the day of the Lord, the return or the parousia of Christ. This is the theme, the unexpectedness, but... As I'm sure you're asking, that's the theme, but what's the point? What are we to learn from this? What is Jesus teaching? As a disciple of Jesus Christ, what am I supposed to do with this? I would suggest that Christ introduces the unexpectedness of that day in order to once again, as we've seen so often in Matthew, teach us how to walk wisely in the world. In fact, the remainder of Matthew 24 and 25 focuses on walking, on living wisely in the world in light of the unexpected return of Christ. Or if you want a title and you really like alliteration, like my eldest does, you might say, this is wisely walking while waiting in the world. Look at verse 37. Verses 37 through 41 give us three admonitions to take the coming day of the Lord seriously. This is no laughing matter. This is not something to brush aside. The first relates to the days of Noah. There are a couple of great observations we could make from these verses if time allowed. We could talk and note how Jesus takes seriously the historicity, the factual historicity of 
the flood. We can note that Jesus affirms the worldwide nature of the flood by the use of all in verse 39, just like Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. But we won't do that. Instead, we'll focus our time on the unwise and the foolishness of the people of Noah's day. Despite the warnings they received, they were caught unexpected and they were destroyed. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness to that generation, and they ignored him. For 50 to 75 years, they ignored a giant ark being built. Instead, they spent their time eating and drinking, whining and dining, gorging and guzzling entertaining themselves to death, going about life as if there will be no judgment, no reckoning for sin. And if you know the story of Noah's Ark, you know the end. And it's not nearly as cute and sweet as the nursery pictures of smiling animals on a boat with a rainbow over them. It was horrendous time of judgment. You read the language of what was taking place. There's estimates that a world covered in water, the currents would have been ripping around, exceeding 100 miles an hour, drowning, throwing people around, bashing bodies before they drowned. It would have been a terrifying time. They all perished in their indifference and ignorance and unbelief. Second example Jesus provides is briefer and anticipates a future situation. Two men in a field, one is taken. This is, the, again, the language of judgment. To be taken is to be destroyed or slain. We just saw that in verse 39 with reference to Noah. All those living in unbelief were taken away in the flood. In verse 40, these men are going about their daily lives, ignorant or ignoring the future judgment of God, and their flippant attitude toward the judgment of God catches up to them. Similarly, the third example in verse 41 depicts two women busy about their lives indifferent to God's judgment until it comes and sweeps one away. The lesson? Wise living takes God's warnings seriously. Wise living recognizes God's judgment and repents before it is too late. It was too late once the door of the ark shut. There's a warning here for those who do not take God at his word who do not respond when the word of God comes. Judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. We read it this morning. God is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness. He is what? Patient. Not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You may not know the hour, but as verse 35 says before our text, heaven and earth will pass away. His words will never pass away. They are yes and amen. If you have not turned from your sins, if you are indifferent to God, you will be judged. But the great news, the wonderful news, the, the news of Christmas is that you don't have to live there. You don't have to live outside the ark. Repent. If you're here this morning and you are realizing that you would have been outside of that ark, if you realize that you have been indifferent and flippant toward God, toward your sin, toward judgment, you must repent. You must turn from your sin before it is too late. 
judgment is coming and it will be terrible. If you are unsure of how to respond to God, at its core, it's cry out to him for mercy. Recognize that you are a sinner and that he is the only, his son, Jesus Christ, is the only source of salvation. Come and find myself, one of the others here. We would love to talk to you. Grab the person next to you. And for those of you who are disciples of Jesus Christ, are you following the example of Noah who was a preacher of righteousness during that time of pending judgment? For 120 years, he preached. And other than his family, he did not see one single person repent. Do not let results dampen your resolve. Continue preaching and warning. Children, let me ask you this. If a friend was about to step in a hole and hurt themselves, maybe fall and break bones, what's the loving and caring thing to do? To yell at them to watch out, to try and stop them, right? Or is it maybe better to avoid potentially hurting their feelings and not say anything? I'm not saying we preach the gospel unlovingly. We should always speak with grace and with kindness or Actions should back it up. But we must warn people of the dangers of hell and the coming judgment of God. This world is going about their lives, in most cases, unaware of the danger. And in a lot of cases, that's the church's fault. They're failing to warn them. We are surrounded by those who will not use the word sin or judgment Some go so far as to embrace, excuse, and encourage sinful living because they don't want to hurt feelings. They don't want to push people away. The world is entertaining itself to death, much like in the days of Noah. Will you warn them? Jesus continues his instruction on wise living while waiting in this world in verses 42 through 44. And the lesson here is to be alert. The wise person who responds to God's word is alert. The illustration Jesus provides in verses 42 through 44 portray a thief looking to break in and steal. But he's only successful at stealing if the head of the house, the person who's to be watching over it, is not paying attention, is not careful. The parousia, the day of the Lord, will come suddenly. So we are to be alert. We are to be active. We're not to be sitting back. We're not to just be sitting here waiting. We are to be preparing both our own lives and as we've already noted, or our own lives as we've already noted, we're also to be preaching the gospel to others. The idea of activity or doing becomes the theme of the next several illustrations Jesus provides throughout the rest of chapter 24 and chapter 25. We'll learn more about the wise activity of the faithful disciple as we continue through those verses. But the wise disciple of Jesus Christ here is alert. They are paying attention. They are guarding what has been entrusted. They are protecting what is most valuable. Have you ever thought about that? On this earth, what is the most valuable thing? We can list some important things, some valuable things. My wife, my children, they're important, they're valuable. They should be a priority in my life. But as much as I love them, they're not the most valuable thing, are they? 
the most valuable thing on this earth is our love for God, our relationship with God. Secondly, our love for others. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we must guard and protect this. How do we do it? Well, how do you protect your love of a husband or a wife or a child or a friend? You prioritize it. You work on habits and practices that make it grow stronger. You don't let anything get in the way of it. You work to show the person you love them. If you've hurt them, if you've caused harm to the relationship, you ask for forgiveness. You express your sorrow and your repentance. We must be just as serious, just as diligent at protecting and preventing anything from stealing our love for Christ. And similarly, we must be active in loving others. Real love, as we've already noted, warns persons of danger or judgment. It's actually a form of veiled hatred to refuse to tell someone of impending danger. Real love serves others. It cares for others. We must be alert. We must be careful. We must be watching out for anything that would steal our love for Christ, anything that would prevent or hamper our relationship or our testimony to a watching world. As we noted at the beginning this morning, we have a fascination with the future. And while we cannot know the day or hour of Christ's return, there is, as we've observed, much we can know, and more importantly, much we should be doing because that day is certain, and it is certainly coming. That second personal coming of Christ will be as different as possible from the first. We're celebrating the first. We're in the midst of it. And he came that first time as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was born in the manger of Bethlehem, in lowliness and humiliation. He took the very nature of a servant. He was despised. He was not esteemed. He was betrayed into the hands of wicked men. He was condemned by an unjust judgment. He was mocked. He was flogged. He was crowned with thorns and at last crucified between two thieves. A time is coming when we do not know, but come it will. And he will come the second time as the king of all the earth with royal majesty. And all people, from sovereign to serf, from president to pauper, will stand before his throne to receive an eternal sentence. We are promised that before him every mouth shall be silenced, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That day is coming, of that we are certain. Are you ready? And are you walking wisely in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the important reminders we've had this morning of the certainty of that day of your coming. Father, help us to respond in obedience and in love. Love for you and love for others. Warning others of that pending day, that day of judgment. Father, would our excitement about being found in you and spending eternity with you, would that motivate how we behave now, how we act now, that we would...
be busy about obeying you, obeying your commands, and growing our love for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.